0: If you would please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 33. Psalm 33. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is right, and his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap, He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven, he sees the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually, he considers all their works. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety, neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and shield for our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word today, we see in it your greatness, your power, and your glory. I pray that you would show forth your greatness to us through what we have just read. I pray that uh, my words would be true, and that uh, even as weak and as frail as they are, that uh, Somehow, some way, you would show forth through them just how magnificent and glorious you are, so that we may worship you as you are and as you are worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So why do you worship God? I mean, you're here. That is what we are here for to worship God. You do it out of a sense of duty. It is good and right and in accordance with God's word and will for you to come here on the Lord's day and to worship God. That is all well and good and true. That duty is grounded in authority. God has authority to command us what to do and to command us to obey him. But the problem with all relationships is that duty is often not enough to sustain them or to keep them well. Duty remains duty, and to abdicate good duties we have is wrong. But duty does not deal with our affections. Duty does not create love. It is a component of love. Love creates duty, but duty itself is not love. We can apply this to our human relationships. If you have a job, you can do your duty. You can do what is required of you while hating your job, hating your work. And you can even keep that up for a long time. Reminded of my father, he worked for over 35 years for the same company until he retired from it. He didn't always like it. He was often very frustrated with the company and the things going on there. But he stuck it out to the end. He did it to provide for his family. He did it out of loyalty even to his employer when they didn't always deserve it. That's an example of doing something out of duty but not necessarily out of love. Those of you who are married, one would hope that your duty in marriage comes from love. You love your spouse You care for your spouse. You want him or her to be cared for and happy. And so you do what duty in marriage requires of you so that it may be so. The same for your children. You care for them. You provide for them. You help them as you can because you love them. The same in reverse for your parents. You give parents the honor and care and respect That you owe them because you love them, because you honor them, not just because they're your parents and you have to, but because you love them for who they are. Now, what does all of this have to do with our worship of God? If we are Christians long enough, we can go through seasons where our affections don't align necessarily with our duties. We come to worship week in and week out, and we can find that our hearts may not really be in it. We do our duty. We're here because we're supposed to be here, but it's devoid of love and affection. And it is because we are prone to this that we need to be reminded early and often of the greatness of our God, of who he is and what he has done. When our worship becomes rote and dutiful And empty, it is often because we forget, we neglect who we worship and why. Now there are many psalms that could help us to reflect upon the greatness of God, and one that is particularly powerful in that regard is this one we have read, Psalm 33. We'll reflect on this psalm of praise so that we may know why God is worthy of our praise and our love and our affection. And so this psalm gives us four major reasons why we should praise and love our God. First, his supreme being. We praise our God because of who he is, what he is like, his being and attributes. This is what we see in verses one through five. Second, God's sublime creation. We praise God because of what he has made the beauty and the glory of the earth and the good blessings in it, which we get to partake of. And we see this in verses 6 through 9. Third, we see God's steadfast providence. Not only did God make the world, He is sovereign over it. He rules and governs it down to the most minute of details. We see this in verses 10 through 17. And then fourth and finally, God's saving deliverance. Not only has God made us, not only does he rule over us, he offers us salvation. Salvation. We see this in verses 18 through 22. So first we will look at God's supreme being in the first five verses of this psalm. Now this psalm opens with a call to worship, a call to praise God with shouts and new songs and with all kinds of instruments. It is a loud and enthusiastic and powerful picture of worship in these opening verses, in verses 1 through 3. And then in verses 4 and 5, we get several reasons why this ought to be done. First, we see that the word of the Lord is right. We see that at the beginning of verse 4. Or other translations say upright. His words are true. We give God this praise. We give God this rejoicing. Oh, we sing his praises. We make these melodies. We do this. One reason we do this is because the Lord's words are true. They are unchangeable. They are reliable. They cannot fail. God speaks things, and because God has spoken them, they are It is by these words that God created the heavens and the earth. We will look at that in a moment. But just as God is eternal and he is immutable, he is unchangeable, so too is his word. If he says something, it will come to pass and it does come to pass. If he makes a promise, it will be kept with absolute certainty. God is all-powerful, and as such, nothing can thwart his words. Nothing can change them. Nothing can overcome them. But second, and similarly, we see that his work is done in truth, in faithfulness. Not only are God's words guaranteed, but so too are his acts and deeds. What he purposes comes to pass. Again, what He promises will be brought about. There is no shadow of turning with Him. There is no falsehood or fraud in God. Though others fail us in this fallen and sinful world, God's Word is as true and as righteous as He is. Third, we see that God loves righteousness and justice. God is our lawgiver. Every Lord's Day we read from the law. We read the Ten Commandments. Sometimes we read the two great commandments in which we find the summary of God's righteous standard for us, which reflects God's own righteousness. We know God's righteousness and justice according to God's word. And it is important for us to remember this as we live in an age where there's a lot of discussion, there's a lot of rhetoric concerning justice, social justice. We've seen schools of thought emerge like critical race theory and liberation theology and things of the sort. And they'll pull a text like this that says that God loves justice, but then they load that word justice with all their postmodern revisions and ideas of what justice is. But God's justice is according to God's word. It is a life of love for God and love for neighbor as God has commanded those things to be done. It's why we read the law. It's why we reflect on the law. It is our rule for life as Christians. Now that means that justice is not to do whatever trendy social program the world is trotting out this week. When we speak of God's righteousness and justice, it is righteousness and justice as they have always been from eternity, not something blown in the winds of our time. Fourth, We see that the earth is full of God's goodness. God is good to us. He does what is good for us and good to us. We can trust that God will provide whatever we need for body and soul. His word and works are faithful. God is not like other people who can sin, who can fail, who let us down. He's not a father like our earthly fathers who can fail to deliver on what they promise. Now, this is not to say that we do not face failures and struggles and difficulties in this life, and doesn't mean that we don't struggle with needs and sorrows. Sometimes, though we see here that what God does is good, we recognize that evil exists too, and we are often confronted to us, con- confronted with it. But God promises to turn these adversities to our good. It's what we see in Romans eight twenty-eight, And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Not just some of the things, not just the visibly externally good things. All things work for our good and God's glory. And so for who God is, is expressed in these attributes, is expressed in all these reasons we've been given in these verses to praise Him. He is worthy of our trust and He is worthy of our praise. Although we see difficulties all around us, although we see faithfulness and righteousness and justice not always carried out because we live in a fallen sinful world, full of fallen and sinful people like us. Our God is not like that. He is true. He is righteous. He is just. And for this, we praise Him. But second, our second point today, we praise God for His sublime creation. We see this in verses 6-9. through nine. We have talked about God's Word and how it is faithful and certain and reliable. <coughs> it is by that Word that God the Father spoke into being the heavens and the earth. This is what happened in Genesis 1, the account of God's creation in six days, which are six days. God speaks. He says, let there be over and over again. And every time he does, the thing that he says, let there be, is. From nothing, something. And not only do the heavens and the earth and all things in them come to be, they are good. This creation is purposeful. It is moral. The world has order. It makes sense. Our God is so powerful and mighty that he can create such a universe in one week just by saying it. Now this can be a heavy lift for people in our day. We have ideas like Darwinian evolution, which says that there's too much to creation. There's Too much to earth. It could not have been spoken into being so quickly. It would have taken millions or billions of years to come to be, and so it must have evolved over millions or billions of years. In such a naturalistic and materialistic perspective, the world has to account for itself, because there is no supernatural. They would believe in no God that could make such a thing. But to us... We know and believe and confess an almighty, eternal, all-powerful God who made and transcends and rules over nature and can make it and form it to his will. There is no scientific problem with creation. There is a more fundamental problem in that people reject the knowledge and even the possibility of this God who is above and beyond our limited understanding. But not only did God create the heavens, all of the sky and the stars, all of that, he created the hosts of heaven. He created the angels. He created the spiritual realm. And again, by speaking it, he does it with a breath, as the psalm says in verse 6. Now, as I've said before, this Hebrew word for breath, it can also mean spirit. And in fact, some translations here in Psalm 33 say spirit. Spirit. Now what this helps to do is it helps to underscore, among other things, the Trinitarian nature of creation. God the Father speaks, He decrees, the Son does the work of creation, the Holy Spirit gives life to creation. But We also see it in this God's power, the kind of things uh, that though we as people are builders and creators with our limited power, we could never hope to match These are the kinds of things that God does effortlessly with words, with breath. You see that God created the seas. We see this in verse 7. He gathers them as a heap, He rules over them completely, and causes them to move as they move. Have you ever been to the ocean? Have you ever looked out upon it? We lived near the Pacific in Southern California for three years when I was in seminary. In fact, Our church there met in a chapel right there on the beach, so we would see it about every week. And every time I would see the ocean, I would be taken at just how big it is. All the creatures in it, we would sometimes see dolphins and birds and even occasionally whales. We'd see the way the tides go in and come out, the way the ocean influences the weather, the winds and the rain. We'd see the currents. We'd see the ocean in various ways, constantly moving, the waters going from one place to another. And the ocean is so vast and deep that even with all our technology that we have, we have still explored very little of it. We discover new species in the ocean all the time. It's so deep, we can't get to the bottom. And God created it by his word and rules over it all. Because God created all things by mere speaking and so powerfully rules over and commands all of them, there is only one proper response, and we get that in verse 8. Let the earth fear the Lord, but all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Now note here that a distinction is not made between God's people and others. Everyone owes worship. Everyone owes honor to God, even if they refuse to acknowledge it, because God created us. He owns us, and we owe Him. Romans 1 tells us that because of God's great works in creation, which display His power and His glory, all of mankind are without excuse. The clay has no right to say to the potter, why did you make me thus? Who are we and what are we compared to an almighty God who creates the world and everything in it with words? And verse 9 sums this up for us For he spoke and it was done, he commanded and it stood fast. God has done it. He made all things, and yet that is not all that he does. For having looked at how we praise God for His being and His attributes and then for His works of creation, we now turn to our third reason we praise Him, His steadfast providence in verses 10 through 17. We see in the middle section of this psalm how God rules everything according to His counsel. God has decreed all things that will come to pass from the beginning to the end. Now this includes what happens in nations, in politics. We read in verse 10 that the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. Man is a political creature. Through our machinations, we attempt to rule and fix the world by political and governmental means. We're now getting to where a presidential election cycle was starting to ramp up. We have a lot of candidates and a lot to sort out over the coming months. But even as we think that we can rule the world or fix the world in this way, God is sovereign over the governments of man. We read in Romans chapter 13 that there is no authority but that which God has established. Now that includes... And this can be difficult for us to swallow, but that includes even wicked and godless rulers. He can raise up wicked kings in judgment to accomplish his purposes. How often in the Old Testament do we see pagan kings doing the Lord's will, chastening his people and bringing about God's purposes, even if they won't acknowledge them? Even if we live in a wicked nation with wicked leaders, God is sovereign over this. He doesn't stop being in control just because things aren't going our way. Now this does not mean that we should ignore government or politics or be indifferent to them. Far from it. The stakes in the political are often moral, determining whether society will operate according to good or according to evil, and we should do what we can According or towards a just and good society, according to God's law. But we do not have to fret or despair or obsess with the political because we know that God is in control, even there. His plans and purposes, even for kings and nations, will stand. We see that God's counsel cannot fail. Verse 11 tells us that it stands forever. To all generations. There is nowhere, and there are no people to whom it does not reach. And then in verse 12, we get a blessing for the nation whose God is the Lord. Now, this verse comes up a lot around patriotic holidays and the like, as though it applies specifically to the U.S. Now, at the time of the writing of this psalm, there was exactly one nation whose God was the Lord, that was Israel. So what does this verse mean for us? And for now, who is the nation whose God is the Lord? Is it or can it be our nation, a particular nation on this earth? Now, in certain ways, God does favor nations who do and promote what is pleasing in his sight. And he judges those who promote evil. That's real. That's true. That happens. We can observe that all throughout history. For much of our nation's history, we have had a strong Christian presence and heritage. The gospel has gone forth within this country and from this country to other countries, and we have received many spiritual and material blessings, and we should seek to continue that and to reestablish that where it's been lost. We shouldn't run away from it. We shouldn't shy away from it, as many are inclined to do, trying to consign America's Christian past to the dustbin of history. That's not what we want. But nations do not merely exist for themselves. Who is Israel now? Who is the nation whose God is the Lord in its most pure expression? It is the holy nation, the chosen people, the royal priesthood of 1 Peter 2.9, Christ church. In Romans 11, we read that Israel is God's people, the church, a tree with branches. Some are natural branches of Israel. Those are of the line of Abraham. Others are the Gentiles, the branches that are grafted in. The resulting people is the church, is the holy nation. The Israel of God, as Galatians chapter 6 calls it. These are the people chosen for God's inheritance. Earthly nations, even the most righteous and godly, and we want righteous and godly nations, are just a shadow of this. Now, just because the truest nation is the church does not mean that other nations don't matter. God has prescribed them, he has raised them up for his purposes in the world, and we should still desire civic justice and righteousness as God does. We still engage in politics and social matters as Christians according to God's word. But the nations of this world are not ultimate. The people of God is ultimate. This is our eternal citizenship and our eternal home. God blesses His church and by His providence, He governs all things and all nations of the world for the good of His church. In verses 13 through 15, we see that God's providence is sovereign, not just over nations on a large scale, but every individual person. It says, the Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of man. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. So God not only made the heavens and the earth and everything in them, he made every person and is sovereign over their deeds and choices. His plans cannot be thwarted even by the most powerful of people using the most powerful things at their disposal. And so in verses 16 and 17, we see that there is no hope for deliverance in horses and armies. And that day, horses and armies would be your representation, would be your measure of power. The kings of God's people were ordered not to accumulate horses because a king that would do this would be trusting in his own strength and not God's. But how many ways now do people find to trust in their own strength and not God's? Horses and chariots have fallen out of style, but now people trust in themselves in other ways. They trust in their money, their economic power. They trust in their influence. They trust in their politics, as we've already talked about. They trust in science and technology and medicine, all to have a longer and better and more successful life. There's no salvation in any of those. There's no ultimate hope in any of those. Verse 17 makes this clear. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Now, as with other things we have seen in this text, we see that this applies to nations. No nation can sustain itself under its own power. God raises up. And God puts down. Many of the nations will shake their fists at God and abandon his word and ways. As Psalm 2 says, the nations will rage and the peoples will plot in vain. But the nations that rebel against God meet their end someday. No armies, no human invention or tanks or planes or missiles will save them. Because God rules over all and his power and his providence is sovereign and absolute. So we have seen thus far three reasons to praise God. His being and attributes, his works of creation, and his providence. And then finally, in our fourth point, we will see that we praise God for his saving deliverance in verses 18 through 22. In verses 18 and 19, we read that, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Now, on a surface level reading, we might think that these verses are talking about temporal things, actual famine, surviving calamities in this life. But we also know that all people, including God's people, face calamities and famine and death, and sometimes they don't overcome them in this life. We are, after all, all of us, fallen and mortal creatures. We're going to die, even though the time and the cause are not known. So where is our ultimate hope? Even if I escape from this famine or that disease or whatever other calamity might come, I am going to die eventually. Well, the hope that this psalm describes is grounded in something safer and more established than this mortal life. For God's salvation is accomplished not in kings or princes or food or drink or any other thing. It's accomplished in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. God delivers the souls of his people from death. How do we know this? We know this because he delivered Jesus Christ from death as the first fruits of our resurrection. Jesus suffered and died righteously without sin to make atonement for our sins. But if he had stayed dead, there would be no reason to hope in a life to come. And yet, on the third day, Jesus rose again. And so although we may face death or other calamities in this life, because the Father raised Christ, we can have confidence that God will also raise us His children on the last day. This gospel truth is to be received by faith. And this is what we see in these final verses. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our hearts shall rejoice in Him because we have trusted in His holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. Because our God is all good and all powerful in His being, because of His ownership of all things by creation, His rule over all things by His providence, we know that He is able to do all things. And he is even able to deliver the souls from death of those whom he has chosen to save. And they will believe in him. They will trust in him. They will have hope in him because of the work of Christ and their redemption, the promise shown forth in his resurrection. And so we can take comfort in this and whatever adversities we face in this life, because As I say all the time, we know that we have an almighty God who is also our faithful father. That actually comes from the Heidelberg Catechism, in case you're wondering. Now, perhaps you come here today and you do not have this trust and confidence in this God. And perhaps that makes it difficult for you to know why you come to praise him. Maybe you'd never heard of him before. Maybe you've never believed in him before. Well, friend, you are a sinner. God the Father sent Christ his Son to live the perfect life you could not, to die the death you deserved, and to be raised from the dead to give you the hope and assurance of a new and everlasting life. The call of the gospel, the good news, is to repent of your sins and believe in this Son, Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Now, perhaps you come here knowing God, but facing the trials of this life, struggling to believe, struggling to worship, worshiping only out of duty, but your love and your affections for him having been shaken. Maybe you feel alone. You feel afraid. You feel abandoned. Know that you have a faithful father who is almighty God, who will provide for all that you need. Even if you suffer loss in this life, even if things in this life go wrong, even if the world is not going the way that you think it should, all will be made right in the life to come when your faith becomes sight and you can live with your God forever. And God is sufficiently powerful to turn all of the adversities of this veil of tears for our good, and He will do it he does it. He works all things together for the good of those who love him. Do not despair. Do not lose heart. Know that God is with you and for you. And because of that, worship him with your whole heart. Worship him, not just out of duty, but out of love. And so let all of us believe and trust in our almighty God and praise him for he is worthy. Let us pray. father we thank you for this word that you have given us this psalm of praise it gives us so many reasons why you are worthy of our praise and so many things that we can only even begin to comprehend that we only scratch the surface of because we are so weak and so limited i pray that you would strengthen our faith that our hearts would truly love you and that we would serve you and worship you not merely out of duty or compulsion but because we love you and because we know that you have loved us and you work all things for our good. I pray that because of these glorious truths we would be salt and light to the world around us taking the good news to those who have not heard. We pray all of this in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamelopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.